0: Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud, so good to have you with me tonight. Tonight the conclusion of Lewis Bromfield's story, Up Ferguson Way. Well, last week Bromfield told us of his extraordinary encounter as a boy with Zenobia Ferguson during a visit with his father to her farm. It was a magical experience for the narrator, in which he entered an enchanted world where there were no annoying grown-ups. And all the animals and birds were companions. Many years later the narrator learned the story of her life, and we learned last time of her early loss of her parents and her solitary life when she took over her father's farm above a forest on a bald hill. She fell in love with a young man named Aaron. The local people said they had never known two people so deeply in love. But before he married Zenobia, Aaron was determined to make something of himself and set off for the West in search of gold. Zenobia largely withdrew from local society to wait for him. Part Two of Up Ferguson Way by Lewis Bromfield While Aaron was away, dark things began to happen in the county which have since become legendary. There appeared from nowhere a band of highwaymen and robbers. In those days, farmers were far apart, there were no telephones, and horses were the only means of transportation. The robbers were three in number, one tall and two short men. They dressed in dark clothes, and never were seen save in the darkness and with their faces covered. They would appear on a lonely road through the woods, or on a covered bridge, to stop a family or perhaps a lone traveler and rob them. After a while— it became evident that they were not a band of outsiders, for they remained there in the county, and it was clear that they knew who were the rich and the poor. They knew, too, many other things, like the Christian names of their victims. After a while the terror grew so great that no one ventured out on the road at night, and then it was that the highwaymen took to descending on lonely farmhouses to break their way in and rob and terrorize the inmates— The sheriff organized special posses to patrol the roads and made up search parties, but the efforts of the posses came to nothing, and after a while it became clear that someone was informing the highwaymen of the activities of the posse in advance, for they never appeared or robbed anyone on the nights the sheriff and his men went out on patrol. Of all these activities, Zenobia Ferguson on her lonely farm took no notice, people tried to persuade her to leave the place and come down into the valley, but she only said that she had no money anyway, and the farm was so remote that it was safe. Anyway, she meant to stay there until Aaron came back. It may have been that she was not afraid, or more likely that between her and that piece of land high against the sky with all the wild things that dwelt there with her, there was some special bond which other people did not understand." In any case, she stayed stubbornly in the cottage, coming down only once or twice a month, dressed in her finest clothes to buy what she needed in the village. What she did not know, or ignored, was the legend that she was rich, that she had money hidden away which her father had left her. To many people it was the only answer to all the books. People who had libraries must be rich, and to the fineness of Zenobia's clothes, They didn't understand her liking for jewelry and ribbons, nor the fact that in a calico frock she appeared better dressed and more stylish than the banker's wife in her furs and broadcloths. Simple people said, "'Zenobia Ferguson has a pot of gold hidden away somewhere.'" And so one night, when the sheriff and his posse were not out on the roads, the highwaymen came up the tunnel through the forest up to the high farm. It was still bright night, like the night Zenobia and Aaron had ridden up the same primitive path. Neither Zenobia nor her father had ever had a lock on the doors of the cottage, and when the highwaymen entered, they found Zenobia asleep. They woke her, and standing about her with handkerchiefs over their faces, told her they wanted the gold she had hidden away. Zenobia, truthfully perhaps, told them she had no money. They found her cheap jewelry, mostly cameos and garnets and a few amethysts set in silver, but that didn't satisfy them, and presently they bound her and burned matches against the soles of her feet to force her to tell them where her money was hidden. It did no good. She did not cry out, and afterward in court she said there was only a few dollars in the house. She would have told them where it was, she said, but she hated cruelty. And was determined not to give them even the satisfaction of those few dollars. She did not scream. She would not speak to the robbers at all, and when the daylight came they went away, baffled. A week passed before Zenobia's scorched feet were healed enough for her to hobble down into the valley to tell of the highwayman's visit. The old men said that she always walked differently after that terrifying night. They said that was one reason why, even to the day of her death, she carried herself very straight with a peculiar air of fierce pride. Even after the robbery she would not leave the Ferguson place. She did have locks put on the door, and she bought herself a pistol and a shotgun and a dog. Later at the trial she said, "'I didn't buy the guns to protect myself, but my place,' I didn't want strange people wandering about all over it. It was my place, and I loved it, and all the animals on it. I wasn't harming anyone, and no one had any right to come up there raising hell." It was a crude expression, perhaps because she hadn't the words to explain more clearly what she meant, but more likely because she did not believe people would understand how she felt even if she explained. It was the first time people began to understand about Zenobia, that she was different and a little touched that it was different up Ferguson Way in that world against the sky. Among the Pennsylvania Dutch settlers, people began to whisper that Zenobia Ferguson was a hex. In the meantime, out in the West, Aaron had, he wrote, found a partner, and was prospecting. Each week now she came down from the hill to get his letter at the post-office. It wouldn't be long now, he wrote, until he'd come back to fetch her. She kept all these letters. Mrs. Berry, Edberry's daughter-in-law, found them when they went up to Bury Zenobia, more than three-quarters of a century later. I have them now, along with Zenobia's journal. They are extraordinary letters, not too well spelled and not always grammatical, but filled with passion and tenderness, and a strange direct poetry and mysticism. In the robust, good-looking young Aaron, there must have been a streak of that fey quality which Zenobia had all her life. In one letter he wrote, "'It's fun out here. You can go all day and never see a house or a man. It ain't crowded like as getting to be back in the valley. Out here you and I can have the world to ourselves.' With nothing around us but the trees and the wild flowers, the birds and the beasts. I am coming back soon. I will write you when I am coming. I want you to be there waiting for me when I come up out of the woods. I want it to be evening with the sun going down behind the hill, and we'll walk up and up to the top of the hill, overlooking the three counties, and then..." Sometimes he quoted passages from the Bible but they were always the wild, pagan, passionate parts. I remember that among them he quoted often enough the Song of Songs, as if he felt his own ardor and words were not enough. He wrote, "'How beautiful are thy feet with shoes, O prince's daughter! The joints of thy thighs are like jewels, the work of the hands of a cunning workman. Thy navel is like a round goblet which wanteth not liquor.' thy belly is like an heap of wheat set about with lilies, thy two breasts are like two young rows that are twins, thy neck is as a tower of ivory, thine eyes like the fish-ponds of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabin, thy nose is as the tower of Lebanon which looketh down toward Damascus, thine head upon thee is like Carmel, and the hair of thine head like purple." THE KING IS HELD IN THE GALLERIES. HOW FAIR AND HOW PLEASANT art THOU, O LOVE, FOR DELIGHTS! They were a strange pair to be bred among the staid, straight-laced people of the valley. Out of the ashes of Aaron's old faded letters there still arises, after nearly a hundred years, a kind of wild and glorious passion. I think that all along until the end Zenobia knew proudly that God had somehow set her aside, that there was a richness in the strange, lonely life which the other women in the county never knew. At last Aaron wrote that he and his partner had found a good thing, and that he would be coming home soon. In the cottage Zenobia began to pack up the books of her father's library, not without sadness, for only Aaron and his love could ever have made her leave the Ferguson place." In the county the three highwaymen were still at large. Their depredations had spread now into adjoining counties. They worked on horseback, and struck now here, now there, at places far apart. The people of three or four counties began to talk of calling out the militia to guard the bridges and the lonely stretches of road. And then one night, a little after midnight, Zenobia was wakened by the barking of her dog, and in the darkness she heard the sound of footsteps going about the house from one door to another. As she described it at the trial, she was not frightened. She was only angry again at the invasion of her world. She got out of bed, and picking up the clumsy old pistol, she pointed it at the door, calling out, "'If you don't go away, I'll fire!' For a moment she waited, and then she heard the sound of a man's slow laugh, and pulled the trigger. For a long time after she had fired she waited listening. The laugh was not repeated, and there were no more sounds of any kind outside the cottage, and at last she went back to bed. But she did not sleep. At the trial she said she lay awake for the rest of the night, not through fright, but because she was haunted by the sound of the laugh it kept coming back to her, as if it were the laugh of someone she knew. She kept hearing the laugh, interrupted by the sound of the pistol's explosion, checked before she could really recognize it. Then, as the sun came up, she dressed and unlocked the door and looked out. There, on the doorstep, lying dead, face down, was Aaron." It was late on the same evening before Zenobia appeared at the home of Ed Barry's grandmother. What she did during the long hours of that day alone with Aaron's body, no one ever knew or will ever know. Barry's grandmother said that Zenobia's face suddenly appeared in the doorway. The lamps were already lighted, but even their rosy glow did not change the chalky whiteness of Zenobia's wild young face." THE BLACK EYES HAD A CURIOUS, HARD, STARING LOOK IN THEM. EDBERRY'S GRANDMOTHER SAID, COME IN AND SIT DOWN, ZENOBIA. WHAT IS IT? WHAT'S GONE WRONG? ZENOBIA, WITHOUT SPEAKING, SAT DOWN AND STARED IN FRONT OF HER. FOR A LONG TIME SHE WAS SILENT, SO STILL THAT ED'S GRANDMOTHER THOUGHT SHE HAD GONE MAD. THEN, VERY QUIETLY, SHE SAID, "Aaron IS DEAD. I killed him. I didn't mean to." Ed's grandmother brought her a glass of blackberry wine, which Zenobia drank meekly. Then with the same tense quietness she told her story. She understood it now. Aaron had come home without telling her, to surprise her. She said, I know what he meant to do. He meant to come into the house quietly and waken me, as he used to do sometimes before he went away but while he was away, after the robbers came, I put a lock on the door. He didn't know about that, and he went all the way round the house trying to find a way in. That was when I heard him and took up the gun. And when I called out, he laughed, thinking I would know who it was. And I didn't. I didn't. Not until afterward, when everything was still, and I kept hearing the laugh and the stillness, and I thought— it sounded like Aaron, but it couldn't be. That's what kept me awake till morning. I told myself, if it was Aaron, he would call out. Then she covered her face with her hands, but no sound came out of her. There were no racking sobs. She kept that same awful stillness about her. Presently she said, "'Will you send one of the boys for the sheriff and a preacher?' and come and help me with Aaron?' Ed's grandmother said that for the first time on that evening she saw the mad fixed look in Zenobia's black eyes. It never again left them until the day she died. The sheriff came, and the preacher, and after they had gone away a strange thing happened. Zenobia said to Ed's grandmother, "'The sheriff is the leader of the robbers.' He has the same eyes, and the same voice, and the same way of breathing. I saw his eyes above the handkerchief when they were torturing me. That man is the leader." But no one paid much attention to her, thinking that Aaron's death had driven her crazy. But the odd thing was that Zenobia was right. A month later, a woman came to the police in the county seat and betrayed the sheriff. She was the wife of one of the other highwaymen and when her husband left her for another woman, she told the whole story. Only then did it become clear why the robbers never operated on the nights the sheriff led the posse. It was one of those stories which became legends in a frontier country, and in a way it was the sheriff-robber who had really killed Aaron, for if the band had not come to Zenobia's cottage to torture her, there would have been no lock on the door, and no pistol, and Aaron would have walked in as he had planned to do. They buried Aaron in the old orchard there on the hill, because that was what Zenobia wanted, and afterwards they held a kind of trial of Zenobia. It was never more than that, for no one really believed that she had murdered Aaron with intent. She would have no lawyer to defend her, but simply told her own story, very quietly, and in all the court there was not one person— even the prosecuting attorney, who did not believe her. She walked out of the court and went back, riding in Edberry's buggy, to the Ferguson place high above the woods, close to the sky, with its view of three counties, and there she lived until she died. From then on she no longer lived in this world at all, but in a world of fancy, nearer to the trees and the water, the rain and the snow and the birds and beasts, than to any one on this earth. She was over sixty when I first met her on the day my father took me through the green tunnel in the woods up Ferguson Way. After that I saw her many times, sometimes on the street in the town, moving along with her strange air of dignity and chic in the yellow taffeta gown, the black picture hat and the black lace mitts. Twice I saw her at the cottage up Ferguson Way, when my father covered the county electioneering, but never did I quite recapture that strange sensation of moving out of this world into another, in which trees and streams had meaning, and where animals were not animals, inarticulate and shy, but companions whose language one understood. Perhaps it was because, as I grew older, I slipped out of that childish simplicity in which I could pass so easily through the wall that separated Zenobia's strange world on that high, lonely hill from the world of dull reason and what we call, perhaps oddly and wrong, reality. I think Zenobia knew this, for she did not appear again in the ragged, jungly garden in her fine purple dress to accept me into her world because I was touched. From the day Aaron died, Zenobia never killed anything, not even a fly, and she would allow no one in her world on top of the hill to kill or harm any living thing. Hunters in the country knew that she might kill a man. They remembered Aaron, and when she appeared armed with a shotgun, they did not argue with her. Once in the early morning, while it was still dark, she very nearly frightened to death two boys— whose hound dogs had treed a raccoon on her land. She came crashing out of the underbrush in her man's clothes with a shotgun under her arm, and at the sight of her wild black hair and wild eyes they dropped their lantern, left the hound dogs, and ran. After a little time no hunter ever went near the Ferguson place, and Zenobia and her animals were left in peace. I saw her for the last time when I was about seventeen years old. I left the county then, and did not return for twenty-five years. During all that time I went through two wars, and saw most of the countries of the earth, but I never wholly forgot Zenobia. I thought of her at the strangest places and times. At least three or four times I dreamed of her, seeing her always as she stood in the purple dress, with the squirrel on her shoulder by the spring pond. There was no reason for this, save for that bond between us which she had recognized when she said to the squirrel that I, too, was touched. I have never been a hunter. I have never shot a rabbit or a quail or any small living thing. Although I have killed lions and tigers, panthers and leopards, I never did so with any pleasure, but only out of politeness to my host." it took willpower to force myself to kill the first leopard I ever saw, spitting and snarling at me in the tall elephant grass beneath the howdah. And I felt sick the first time I shot a great tiger, for it was like destroying beauty and magnificence itself. Once I infuriated a fellow hunter when he was about to kill a superb gaur in the bamboo and teakwood jungles of Mysuru by crying out, you can't kill anything as splendid as that. I am even an indifferent fisherman when it comes to keeping the fish. Although I love the sport, my impulse is always to throw back the fish. I suppose that is what Zenobia meant by saying I was touched. In any case, I know that on the night I killed the tiger in far-off India, I dreamed of Zenobia standing by the spring in that purple dress. When I came back to the county, it was to buy land and settle there for the rest of my life. Zenobia was dead by then, but the strange thing was that the only desirable piece of land was Ed Berry's farm, and by then the farm beyond the woods and against the sky had become a part of Ed Berry's place. It had to be sold together, and so I came into possession of the Ferguson place and many strange things which went with it. The place, Edberry's widow said, hadn't changed much, except that Zenobia's cottage had burned down. It wasn't much of a loss, and it wasn't fit for anything by the time Zenobia died. She got poorer and poorer and couldn't pay the taxes, but nobody made any fuss about it. The auditor—it didn't matter whether he was a Democrat or a Republican—just let it ride along. She finally got pretty old and feeble, but she wouldn't leave the place we tried to get her to go to the county poor farm, but she said she couldn't. She was pretty spry, though, and could take care of herself right up to the day she died. Some of us neighbors used to bake things and make pots of baked beans and things and take them up to her once a week. She had an old cow, and she managed to get along. She always seemed happy, but when she got to be very old it seemed like she didn't belong to this world at all." She wasn't much interested in what we had to say, but she'd talk to the birds and animals just like they were people. I was the one that found her dead. I went up with some baked things and some fresh meat and found the door open (you know she never locked the door again after that thing happened about Aaron), and there she was, lying on the bed, dead. She was all dressed up in a purple dress with all her jewelry and gimcracks on, and her hair neatly done just like she knew she was going to die and prepared for it. Maybe that was something she learned from the birds and animals. It was a funny thing. The room was filled with birds of all kinds. They flew out the door when I came in. "'No,' the widow continued, "'the place ain't much changed except the house is gone. Some tramps must have stopped there for the night and set fire to it. It looks kind of ragged, and the old orchard don't amount to much any more. "'We just use the whole place to pasture cattle. "'A car can't get up the road any "'It's so worn out. "'You got to go on foot or horseback.' "'Where did you bury her?' I asked. "'Right there on the place in the orchard, beside Aaron. "'It was kind of against the rules, but nobody made any objection. "'The county had got used to her. "'I guess most people were kind of proud of her. "'It was Ed's idea to bury her up there.' He said she wouldn't rest quiet anywhere else. She sighed. Ed always had good ideas like that. It was a bright morning in early May when I went up Ferguson Way again for the first time in more than twenty-five years. I was on Tex, a big Kentucky mare, because, as Ed's widow said, it wasn't possible anymore to get through the lane in a car or even a horse and buggy. The woods on either side of the lane was little changed save that the wild grapevines grew in a thick tangle, almost closing up the road here and there. The white blossoms of the blood-root were nearly gone, but the banks on either side of the lane were bright with hepaticas and yellow violets and spotted yellow Canadian lilies and trillium. Among them the ferns thrust up their first tender green fronds, and now and then in the openings of the tangled grapevines i caught glimpses of splashes of white made by the dogwood beneath the tender green and pink of the new foliage on the oaks and maples and beech trees the clouds of white blossoms seemed to give off light and the whole woods was alive with the sound of wild birds the rich growth gave the whole forest that air of tropical luxuriance which marks the woods of glacial ohio I thought, maybe there is something special about this place. Maybe because of Zenobia things grew more luxuriantly here. And then I put aside the idea as nonsense. At the top of the lane I came suddenly out of the woods again, onto that high, open hill against the bright, warm sky of early May, and as I climbed up the view of the three counties lay spread out before me once again only this time the colors were not the bold reds and yellows and purples of October, but soft shades of green, with the ponds and lakes and deep stretches of Honey Creek reflecting the blue of the sky above. I reached the top of the hill where the berry cattle were still grazing, and then down below me in the protected hollow by the big spring I saw what remained of the Ferguson place. The house was gone— and only a hollow grown over with honeysuckle remained where the cellar had been, but the old log-house where Zenobia had kept the cow and the dogs and the white horse was still standing. The tangled garden had spread out, seeding itself across the slope. The two ancient Norway spruces still stood by the gate of the broken fence. One side of their trunks had been scarred by the heat of the fire that consumed the cottage, but the trunks were healed again. Up one of them climbed a trumpet vine. I tied the mare to the old hitching-post and went through the gate. All the earth was yellow with daffodils, and above them bloomed huge old purple and white lilacs. The biggest japonica I have ever seen seemed like a bush of flame. The spring-house was still there, completely hidden beneath the overgrowth of vines and shrubbery, and outside it the little spring pond. One whole bank was covered by the little cool ice-green old-fashioned flowers of the Star of Bethlehem. I drank out of my hands of the cold water gushing out of the rock, and lay down on the bank near the pond, experiencing a strange feeling of happiness and peace. It was not only good to be alive It was good to be alive in this particular spot on the surface of the earth. And slowly I began to feel again that sensation I had known as a small boy, of coming up out of the valley into another strange world that somehow existed on a different plane from all other human life. I did not fall asleep, yet the sensation was that of being suspended between sleep and consciousness, when everything becomes amazingly clear, and one's senses are awake to things which at other times go unseen and unrecorded. I was very near again to the trees and the flowers, to the rock, to the water that gushed from it. It was almost as if I could understand what the birds were saying as they chirped and sang in the ruins of the old garden." Then suddenly I felt that I was being watched by someone or something, exactly as I had felt on that October day as a small boy, when Zenobia appeared suddenly among the bushes beside the spring house in the purple dress. I turned and found myself saying, Zenobia. It was the strangest sensation I have ever experienced, of reaching into another world, of being almost at the brink of understanding. At the same moment I heard Tex, the mare, neighing exactly as a horse calls to another horse. She did it twice, and then three times. I thought, having somehow lost myself in time and space, she has seen Zenobia's old white horse. And then, expecting fully to see Zenobia in the purple dress, I turned a little further. But in the spot where she had stood with the squirrel on her shoulder, saying, he's touched like us, there was only a red fox, sitting perfectly quietly, his big bushy tail curled about his feet. For a moment we both stayed there, very still, watching one another. Then, after a little time, he yawned, stood up, and with a final look over his shoulder at me, he trotted off through the daffodils under the shrubbery. The mare called again twice, and then everything was still but for the noisy chirping of the birds. I don't know how long I stayed there, perfectly happy, and still as if I had become a part of infinity, but when I wakened the sun was already down behind the top of the hill. I had no consciousness of having dreamed, yet I was aware that something had happened to me, some experience which I could not quite recapture— some experience that was rich and satisfying. I thought, I must get home for supper, and after a final drink at the spring I turned past the hole that had once been the cellar and came upon the great flat rock which had been Zenobia's doorstep. It was charred and chipped by the fire that had destroyed the cottage, but that made no difference to me. I saw the cottage again as it had been, with the little porch covered with trumpet-vine, and suddenly I thought, here is where she must have found Aaron, lying face down dead as the sun came up. And for the first time I knew the full horror and tragedy of what had happened here. Until then, it had only been part of a story. Now, suddenly, I knew it, almost as if I had been Zenobia, opening the door to look out into the garden. Tex had broken loose when I slept and was up near the top of the hill feeding on the fresh new bluegrass. I caught her without difficulty, and we set off down the ruined lane through the woods back again into the world. As we entered the green tunnel she neighed twice again and turned her head to look behind us. I too turned, believing that I would see Zenobia's old white horse trotting up to follow us, but there was nothing there in the green-hued twilight. I went away to the east, and two months passed before I again went up Ferguson Way. This time I went on foot accompanied by Rex, Prince, and Regina. They are big boxer dogs, and when I'm at home they go everywhere I go and sleep at night in the same room with me. They do not go away from the house unless I go with them. They are as much my friends and companions as any living person, and so it never occurred to me that I should never take them up Ferguson Way, because that was a wild world in which they did not belong. It was midsummer, and the woods were full of damp heat, of ferns, of lush growth and dancing deer-flies. The climb up the long, ruined lane left me breathless and dripping, but at the top, where one came out into Zenobia's high world, there was a breeze, and the air was fresh although the whole panorama of the three counties lay blurred and dancing in a haze of midsummer heat. Again, I had that same sensation of entering another world. We followed the lane over the crest of the hill, and as it descended the other side, I saw ahead of me on the edge of the winding lane a woodchuck, descendant no doubt of the pair I had seen years before at the same spot while Zenobia was still alive. He sat up very straight watching me and the dogs. He did not scamper away as I came nearer, and then I thought, let the dogs give him a run. It'll be fun for them and they'll never catch him. He sat up there on the edge of the lane not twenty-five feet from the safety of his burrow, they couldn't possibly catch him before he ducked out of sight. Boxers are not hunting dogs. They are essentially watchdogs. Their noses are not good, and their eyesight is scarcely better. They hear everything, even at a great distance, but they did not hear the woodchuck. They were running about, their blunt noses to the ground, scarcely a dozen yards away from him. Suddenly I said, "'Look!' and the three of them raised their heads and saw the woodchuck. From three sides they ran for him, but still his way of escape was open. He was safe. But a strange thing happened, something I have never seen before or since. He did not run. He only sat there, upright, chattering a little, full of trust, as if he had no fear of anything. In a second The three dogs had him, and in a second it was all over, and suddenly I was sick. I had done an awful thing. I had betrayed Zenobia and the squirrel. I had violated all that world of which I had been permitted to be a part, a world into which I could enter because I was touched. Even today, three years afterward, I feel shame and disgust over what I did without thought on a shallow impulse. The sight of the comic woodchuck sitting there full of trust and without fear will always be with me. I had done a dreadful thing. I did not even go on to the garden and the spring house, although the heat and climb had given me a terrific thirst. Instead, I turned back, leaving the dead and mangled woodchuck for the buzzards, called the dogs, and set off again down the hill. But I never again took the dogs when I went up Ferguson Way. The next morning George the postman brought me a heavy package. It was from Abilene, Washington, from Ed Berry's daughter-in-law. Inside it was a letter from her. It said simply that she was sending me some old letters and a journal which she had found in the cottage after Zenobia died." Now that I owned the place, and was vaguely Zenobia's only relative, she thought that I should have them. The letters were Aaron's love-letters, written while he was in the West, the ink on them, long since yellow and faded on the rotting paper. As I have told you, they were passionate letters, pagan and wild. Strange letters to have been written by a young fellow born and raised in the strait laced atmosphere of the valley it was clear that he and Zenobia knew a strange satisfaction and glory that was very near to the woods and birds and streams, and remote from the everyday lives of the valley people. In these letters there was the feeling of Pan, of Dionysus, of Diana, of Ephesus. Of the journal, Edberry's daughter-in-law wrote, I can't make out what is in it. A lot of it sounds like nonsense— and none of it makes much sense. I thought that, being a library man, you might understand it. The journal took a little reading and a great deal of understanding, but after a while it became clear. The names Zenobia used were not the names of people, but of animals. The conversations were not conversations with people, but with the birds and the beasts of the fields and the forests. There were even recorded conversations which must have taken place with spirits, the spirits of trees, of stones, of waterfalls. There, on the high, lonely hill in the midst of the forest, Zenobia had lived in a world peopled by friends which none of the others of us could ever know or understand, unless you were, like Zenobia and the squirrel, a little touched. There is only one more incident to tell. I have a daughter, now eleven years old, who has grown up largely in the valley. She is tall and, like Zenobia, very straight. But unlike Zenobia, she has blond hair and very clear blue eyes. She has a horse and caracal sheep and rabbits and pigeons, and she knows all there is to know about animals and farming and the earth. For she has a feeling for these things, and without that feeling, no one can ever understand about animals or how things grow. A friend once said, "'She is a disconcerting child. When she looks at you out of those clear blue eyes, you know that she knows things you don't know and never will.' It is what Zenobia undoubtedly would have recognized as a touched look. She has a friend called Mary, unlike her as possible.' Mary is small and plump and merry and gossipy, but they understand each other and a lot of things some of us older people do not understand. When they were eight, they took to going off for the day, sometimes taking sandwiches with them. Where they went was a secret. Sometimes they begged sandwiches from the kitchen and stayed away all day. There were many places to go, the woods, the creek, the wild-tangled swamp called in the family the jungle. There were caves and waterfalls. Neither of them had any fear of wild things, even of snakes. One evening they did not return until after dark. I went out to find them, and after searching for an hour, returned home to find that they were already in the kitchen having a late supper. I said, "'Where were you?' Sally wouldn't say anything, but her friend Mary said, We stayed to see the raccoons come out. They don't come out until after dark. Did you see them? I saw Sally give Mary a black, fierce look to enforce silence, but Mary was already talking. Yes, we saw a mother raccoon and a whole family. They came to the spring, and the mother raccoon washed everything she gave the babies to eat before she gave it to them. If it was dark, how did you see them? We saw them all right, said Sally stubbornly. Were you scared coming home after dark? I asked. And with scorn, Sally asked, What is there to be scared of? A little later, when I was alone with my daughter, I said firmly, I must know where you go. You must say where you are going. It's a big place, and I must know where I should go to look for you. We didn't go any place. That's a silly answer. I must know, or I'll have to forbid you to go out alone. The clear blue eyes were filled suddenly with anger and resentment. We can't do anything around here without everybody butting in. Why can't you tell me where you go? Because it's a secret. Why is it a secret? Because it is. Because if you knew you'd spoil it for us. I knew it was no use going any further. There was behind the blue eyes a determination which was more than a childish whim. I DON'T KNOW WHY IT NEVER OCCURRED TO ME WHAT LAY BEHIND IT. I SHOULD HAVE KNOWN. AFTER THAT, SALLY WAS FORBIDDEN TO GO OFF FOR THE DAY UNLESS I KNEW WHERE SHE WAS GOING. FOR THREE DAYS SHE STAYED AROUND THE HOUSE, MISERABLE, SULLEN, AND RESENTFUL, AND ON THE FOURTH DAY SHE CAME TO ME AND SAID, I'LL TELL YOU WHERE I GO IF YOU PROMISE NOT TO TELL ANYBODY ELSE. I CAN KEEP A SECRET, I PROMISE. WHERE DO YOU GO? She looked away from me and was silent for a moment. Then she said, "'Up Ferguson Way.' I didn't answer for a moment because the phrase seemed so startling. I hadn't heard it since I was a boy. She could never have heard it, for by now all the old people who had ever talked about "'Up Ferguson Way' were dead. All, I thought—all, I thought, but Zenobia. She went on living.' I said, Why do you call it that? Where did you hear it called that? I never heard anybody call it that. We just made it up. It was a secret. She looked at me strangely for a long time. Then she said, Do you call it that, too? Yes. That's what they used to call it when I was a child. Then she dismissed me. Can I go now? Mary and I haven't been there for a long time. I wanted to ask her what she found there, and why the place so fascinated her, but I knew I wouldn't get any answer. I had never told anyone what I had found there. Why should she? She didn't think, as I had always thought, that to talk about it, to tell anyone, would spoil everything. I had so nearly spoiled it the time I thoughtlessly took the dogs with me. I did not ask her. I only said— "'Yes. I like it up there, too.' She glanced at me quickly out of the clear blue eyes, and as our glances met I knew that she, too, was touched like Zenobia and Aaron, the squirrel, and me. And I knew that she suddenly understood about me. She said, "'I'm glad you put up those no-hunting signs.' And in the blue eyes there was a sudden glint, such as I had once seen in Zenobia's eyes.' and I knew that she, like Zenobia, would run any hunter off the Ferguson place with a shotgun. I knew, too, that Zenobia wasn't really dead at all, that she was still there, and Aaron with her perhaps now, in the trees and in the spring, in the animals and in the waterfall, of the earth itself far more than she would ever be in the grave and the orchard where she lay beside Aaron." She was still alive in my consciousness and in the eyes of my daughter with that kind of immortality which she understood perhaps better than any of us. For me she is always there on that high hill against the sky, when the rain falls there or the wind blows, or the evenings are breathless and still high up above the three counties. It is the kind of immortality I should like to know— to find my place forever in God's scheme of life, and sky, and sea, and earth. Sometimes I hear again Zenobia's voice saying to the squirrel, he knows what we know, he may forget it some day, but in the end it will come back to him. It may be that we have to lose that knowledge and understanding which children have— and then perhaps it comes back to us through living experience and wisdom. Maybe that is what Zenobia meant. You've been listening to Up Ferguson Way by Lewis Bromfield. I'm told that there is yet another twist around the mysterious character named Zenobia. Phoebe Wise, an eccentric hermit from Mansfield, Ohio, was later revealed to be the inspiration behind Zenobia. Phoebe was, in fact, a Bromfield relative whom Lewis Bromfield remembered from his childhood in Mansfield. She left such an impact on young Lewis that her life would become intertwined in his fictional works. In a story called Early Autumn, a Story of a Lady, Bromfield wrote the following. He had a feeling that somewhere in the course of her life something had happened to her, something terrible, which in the end had given her a great understanding and clarity of mind. He knew, too, almost at once, on the day she had driven up to the door of the cottage, that she had made a discovery about life— which he himself had made long since, that there is nothing of such force as the power of a person content merely to be himself, nothing so invincible as the power of simple honesty, nothing so successful as the life of one who runs alone. Somewhere she had learned all this. She was like a woman to whom nothing could ever happen again." I'm Richard Figgy, and this has been For Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe. All the best.